We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender until in God's good time, the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of people. In times of universal deceit, truth is the only rebellion left. As we close out the week, I'm choosing to focus on something a little less weighty and more positive than all this stuff that we talk about all the time, everything that's wrong with the world. Today, I'm going to focus on something that I enjoy doing on a routine basis, and that's watching Westerns. I'm going to explain to you why. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. Welcome to today's Rebellion. You know, as I was thinking uh, of what to cover in today's show, and I was reading through some of the news, considering one topic and another, and thinking of what I've already shared with you this week, it dawned on me that I'm probably as guilty as anyone of focusing on the negative more than the positive. And that can wear anybody down, can't it? And I shared with you in an earlier show this week that we are admonished by the Apostle Paul, by St. Paul, to think about whatever is good, whatever is noble, whatever is true, whatever is right, whatever is lovely, and whatever is admirable. Think about such things. He goes on and he says, if anything is excellent, if anything is praiseworthy, think about such things. And as I was considering the topic for today's show, looking at some of the junk that's taking place in the news, and it's so easy to find, isn't it? We all open up our computers or look at our smartphones and we see the world falling apart before our very eyes. But fixating on that stuff can lead to a negative frame of mind. It can lead to us being calloused in heart, mind, and soul. A good education, a liberal arts education in days gone by was to teach us to think about what is good and true and beautiful and to recognize goodness, truth, and beauty. That's what an education, a liberal arts education, was supposed to do for you in the the old days. Well, there's something else that I enjoy doing. When I am just uh, tired of reading or tired of checking the news, tired of writing, tired of speaking on this show. You know what I do? I turn on a good John Wayne movie, or maybe a Clint Eastwood, or maybe even a more contemporary Western with Russell Crowe, or maybe uh, Kirk Douglas. One of my favorite movies is uh, uh, Tombstone with Kirk Russell. And Val Kilmer. By the way, Val Kilmer is the best Doc Holliday ever in the history of Westerns, in my view. Nobody ever played Doc Holliday better than Val Kilmer. And actually, there's a very redeeming part to Val Kilmer's role in the way he portrays Doc Holliday. You know, Val Kilmer is a broken person in his own right, but the character he plays in Doc Holliday is also broken. You know, he's, 
He's addicted. He's suffering the consequences of his addictions. He loves his vices. He doesn't want to give them up. But there's something redeeming, very redeeming, about Val Kilmer's portrayal of Doc Holliday in Tombstone. And you know what it is? Loyalty. Loyalty. And the definition of true friendship, it's very clear in watching the way Val Kilmer portrays this character of Doc Holliday, that friendship is deep, and it's loyal, and it's committed, but it's also very simple. It's not complex. It's not complicated. It's not nuanced. Friendship, in Doc Holliday's view, is simple loyalty. And he recognizes that there are very few people in the world that are true friends. In fact, he says, he says that Wyatt Earp is his only true friend. He only has one. And he recognizes that Wyatt Earp is loyal to him, and therefore he will be loyal likewise to the point of death. It's a great moral within this relatively violent movie, this portrayal of the gunfight at the OK Corral, this rendition, which is called Tombstone. Well, that isn't really the totality of what I want to talk about today, but it does set the context for the rest of the show because I want to share with you a little bit about why I like Westerns and a little bit of what I think they still teach us. The plots are almost always the same. I was joking with my wife the other day. You can watch one John Wayne movie and the next and the next, and essentially the plot is the same. Now, you may disagree with me and think that I just disparaged John Wayne. Oh, no, please don't do so. I enjoyed the movies. But many Westerns do have essentially the same plot. You have to admit that. But you do have some very uh, different uh, portrayals of actors. Uh, You can watch five, ten different renditions of the gunfight at the OK Corral, but Tombstone, I think, ranks right up there as number one, and certainly Doc Holliday is unsurpassed as he is portrayed by Val Kilmer. Let's take a break. Thank our sponsors. And when I get back, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about why I like Western movies and what I think it tells us about our world. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion, and I will be right back in a couple minutes. Okay, welcome back to The Rebellion. All right, in the, here's what I'd like to start out by saying. In the, in the early history, I, I would argue, of Western movies, and frankly, until very recent times, it was, it was pretty much a standard uh, plot. You had the hero in the white hat, you had the bad guy in the black hat, and you had this contrast, this obvious contrast, this stark distinction between good and the bad. The protagonist, the good guy, and the antagonist, the evil guy. It was very clear. It was very clear. Maybe too simplistic in the minds of some of you, and I understand that. They weren't very complex plots, because there was a clear separation between good and evil. You know, when I grew up, young boys wanted to be the cowboy in the white hat. Very few people wanted to be the guy in the black hat. I suppose sometimes you wanted to do that. But generally speaking, you knew that the guy in the white hat always got the girl, and it was his values that you wanted to copy and emulate. He was the ideal man. You know, Matt Dillon, the rifleman, you know, the list goes on. You, you, you had the cowboy, as the ideal of the American, of American masculinity. Uh, even the Marlboro Man, 
they used that ideal to sell a bad product, to sell cigarettes that caused that very man, that actor, to die of lung cancer. But that's a different story. So you had kind of the textbook definition of what it meant to be a hero in the Westerns. This was an example of how the West was won by the good guys. And many households in our country were an extension of these attributes, these character traits, these values, and this integrity. I mean, who didn't want their son to be a man of loyalty, integrity, honesty, hard work that you saw in many, if not almost all, of the characters that John Wayne played. And likewise, I've mentioned other famous cowboy actors. So I would argue that was pretty much the standard fare through the 40s and up into the 60s, but it started to change maybe in the late 60s and early 70s, let's say. It seemed that the lines were starting to blur. And it wasn't just in the movies. It was in our neighborhoods and our homes as well. You know, there wasn't a white hat and a black hat any longer. There was gray. And you saw it in the way the cowboy was portrayed. The morality play here, the moral to the story, was not as clear. It was not as distinct. I would argue there was still, it was almost impossible to get away from the Christian ethic, the biblical ethic that was the underpinning of the great Western classics and other shows that weren't Westerns, Ozzie and Harriet. But you had the architect, archetype, excuse me, you had the archetype, the squeaky clean hero, the Lone Ranger, if you will. And the portrayal of that person started to blur in the 60s and 70s. But you might say, well, that stuff was unrealistic. You know, the world wasn't all Ozzie and Harriet. I can't believe you're even implying that that stuff was a real-life depiction. Well, maybe it wasn't. Maybe your family wasn't as uh, squeaky clean as Ozzie and Harriet's was. And maybe the American cowboy isn't, uh, and the perfection of that character isn't uh, real. It's not realistic to think that we're all going to be the Lone Ranger or Ozzy in the Ozzy and Harriet show. Okay, fine. I'll give you that one. But isn't good art supposed to reach for the ideal? Shouldn't literature inspire us to be better? I mean, shouldn't the movies that we watch tug on our souls? Shouldn't they prompt us to reach for what could be? rather than settle for what is? What's wrong with an idealized Ozzie and Harriet family? What's wrong with that? Why would you want to settle for anything less, even though you realize you may not be able to achieve it? Why not set the goal out there for that joy and happiness and that that um, perfect nuclear family, if you will? I mean... I've quoted C.S. Lewis over and over again, and here I'm going to do it again. Are we too easily satisfied with the mud in the back alleys when we could be reaching for a vacation at the beach? In other words, why watch a movie about a broken family, dysfunctional, and get all depressed thinking that you can never have anything better than that dysfunction and that brokenness? Why, Why do we 
want to disparage the Lone Ranger and Matt Dillon and Doc Holliday and Wyatt Earp and John Wayne and Jimmy Stewart and all of these these actors who have portrayed the squeaky clean heroes, the moral heroes, the white hat. I mean, that's what comic books used to be all about, the superheroes in the movies and in the comic books. And then there was the anti-hero. You know, you, you saw the clean-cut moral exemplars, and then you saw the clear evil in the Joker and others, right? You had the superheroes like Batman and the Green Arrow, and then you had the nemesis of the Joker and the Penguin and the Riddler. And the clarity of that moral play was obvious. You knew what to reach for. My point in spending all this time isn't to be a movie critic. My point is to suggest that it's not bad. It's not bad to reach for the white hat. Are white hat heroes no longer in vogue because we'd actually prefer to be entertained by vice instead of virtue? That's an interesting question, isn't it? Are we finally getting what we deserve? The dirt and the mud in the back alley? The grime? The muck? Because we've decided to mock the idea of beaches and oceans and what we could have at that vacation on the beach? As if that's not even real. You can't get there. There is no beach. There is no ocean. Uh, We'd rather be satisfied, too easily satisfied, with digging in the sewers, in the back alleys of our cities. It's not just in the movies that we see the blurring of lines. We're seeing it in our churches. There's an author out there. His name is John S. Dickerson, and he's recently written about the troubling condition of the American church. There's a book he wrote that's titled The Great Evangelical Recession, Six Factors That Will Crash the American Church and How to Prepare. Now, his his key premise in his book is this. Now, this is going to be negative, but don't despair. I'm going to end on a positive. His premise is that the church is dying. The American church is dying. And he presents a ton of evidence to support this uh, diagnosis, this terminal diagnosis. According to Dickerson, he says this, Orthodox belief, church attendance, and denominational loyalty are all dropping precipitously. And he's saying, by way of attrition and a transition from the religious homogeneity of the baby boomers to the therapeutic deism, I've talked about that before on this show, of the millennial generation and Gen Gen Zers. This has led to the church floundering and flailing and losing influence in our culture. Who can argue against that? Seems to be the case, doesn't it? We see political division and partisan disagreement within the church just as much as we do out on the sidewalk or in the corporate world. There are all these intramural splits, and we see the woke church and the emergent church fighting against the traditional church, calling them fundamentalists and somehow rubes that don't understand science. We see the divisions even over the COVID stuff, the masking, the vaccine stuff, that's all taking place in the church. Churches are dividing over this. 
Now, Dickerson says that more than 2.6 million of those who are presently 18 to 29 years of age are predicted to leave the sanctuary and abandon biblical faith and traditional values over the next 10 years. Stop and think about that. That trend will accelerate, he says, in the decades to come. And he goes on and talks about the number of non-religious and secular Americans skyrocketing while the percentage of conservative Christians, that is those who actually believe in the Bible, and I'm not talking about a denomination, I'm just saying conservative Christians, Christians who conserve the truths of the Bible, believe the Bible is true, from Genesis to Revelation. He says this will decline to less than 7% of the American population in just a handful of years. 7%. 7%. Now, I grew up in a time when my Christianity was, was oh, my friends might have mocked it. I felt uncomfortable at times because I didn't go to the parties, do the things that they wanted to do. Uh, they may have snickered a bit at my prudishness or whatever they wanted to call it. But they still were my friends. They still respected me. In fact, I would argue they probably respected me more than they would let on because they knew I was trustworthy. They knew I wasn't going to do stupid things. They probably would have said I wasn't as much fun, but there was a general sense of respect. I'm not sure that's even true in our culture anymore. It seems like the conservative Christians are the victims of animosity and outright antagonism because we have these biblical values that people now have branded as being intolerant. So what's the positive What's the positive? We've got so much of this stuff going on. Well, here's the positive. I would argue that the Apostle Paul summarizes this very well for us in his letter to the church of Galatia, one of the other first century churches. He told them in the midst of storms, that had an eerie resemblance to some of the same dark clouds that we're now facing in our culture, he said to the early Christians in Rome, to not repay evil for evil, but to do good. And he said the same thing, as I just mentioned, to the first believers in Galatia. He told them to do good. And he didn't stop with Galatia. He said to the persecuted church in Jerusalem, that the same thing that they were obligated to do was what? Do good. Paul said to Rome, he said to Galatia, he said to Jerusalem, your obligation as a church, as a group of followers of Christ, is to just do good. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. That's what Jesus said in Matthew. See your good works, and Paul just echoes it to the first century believers. Let people see your good works, Church of Galatia. Let people see your good works, Church of Jerusalem. Christians in Rome, let people see your good works. Don't repay evil for evil, but do good. He told Timothy in his letter to him, what did he tell him? Do good. Time and time again, the early church was admonished not to repay insult for insult, but to instead to heed the very words of Christ and do good. And by responding to intolerance, 
not in kind, but rather by doing good, the church did what? It changed the world. And here's your take home for the day, folks. This is the upbeat message for the week. I'll say what I just said again. By responding to the intolerance of their time, not in kind, but rather by doing good, the church changed the world. How so? Orphans were adopted. Widows were loved. The sick were cured. The poor were fed. The dying were saved. And women were honored. Children were wanted. Hospitals and schools and colleges were founded. And slaves were freed. Why? Because of the church. If you're an atheist listening to me right now, if you're an agnostic listening to me right now, you cannot dispute the historical fact that would it not been for the church, then much of that would not have happened. It was the church that founded orphanages. It was the church that rescued widows and served them. It was the church that started hospitals to cure the sick. It was the church that started missions and outreaches to feed the poor. The dying were saved, and women were elevated from the level of chattel to actual equality as human beings because of the church. Children were rescued. Babies, infants were rescued from what was called exposure because the Romans would just leave would just put unwanted infants out in the garbage dump and let them die of exposure. They were rescued by who? The church. And like I said, hospitals and schools and colleges, almost every college that you can think of right now was founded by the church. Even state universities had church mottos, biblical mottos, and some of them still have them. Still have them. You've heard me say time and time again, Almost every college and university library across the land had the words emblazoned on it. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. The words of Christ, the church. G.K. Chesterton once said this, and this is a take-home. Write this one down. Christianity has died many times and risen again, for it had a God who knew the way out of the grave. G.K. Chesterton, one more time. You need to get that one. Think about it. Christianity has died many times and risen again. For it had a God who knew the way out of the grave. The church's way out of what appears to be its present grave of cultural irrelevance is to follow that risen God who promised that the gates of hell would not prevail against us. Jesus said, the gates of hell will never prevail against the church. Oh, it may be persecuted. It may suffer great loss. It may suffer ridicule. It may lose its religious freedom. Many Christians may lose their lives, but the church, the body of Christ, will not suffer defeat, even at the gates of hell. How do I know that with confidence? Because Jesus promised us, and if Jesus is who he claims to be, then I'll take his promises to the bank. I have confidence in that promise. 
And that's why I think we can bless those who persecute us, bless and curse not, and do good. In the midst of plague and contagion and drought and disease and war and famine, dust bowls and stock market crashes, Christians kept doing good and the world changed. In fact, historians will tell you that these early Christians turned the world upside down and set the world on fire. The accomplishments of those early followers of Christ were nothing short of astonishing. They were inspired by their faith to do good in their communities, in their world. Saint Athanasius, whom many have called the author of the Nicene Creed, once wrote this, Seeing the exceeding wickedness of man and how little by little they had increased it to an intolerable pitch against themselves, Christ took pity on our race and had mercy on our infirmity. And then he went on to conclude, Lest the creature should perish and the Father's handiwork in men be spent for naught, God took unto himself a body, a body that not only endures, lives, and breathes in his resurrection, but a body that also endures, lives, and breathes in his church. Even those, even those who would openly place themselves outside the church, somewhere along the agnostic or atheist continuum here, many of them have admitted the redemptive power of the church. I've told you about some of them. Fox, News's contri- uh, Fox News contributor, Greg Gutfeld. He describes himself as non-religious, and he says this, and I quote, I haven't been to church in years, but there is one thing I know. The church is a positive influence in communities in terms of encouraging charity and neighborly concern. Close quote. And then you have an atheist, Elaine de Botton. She's the author of Religion for Atheists. She, re, she, she, she laments the loss of discipline, structure, and community, quote-unquote, in the contemporary culture. And then goes on to come very close to affirming the Christian view of original sin by saying, at heart, we are all desperate, fragile, vulnerable, and sinful creatures, a good deal less wise than we are knowledgeable, always on the verge of anxiety, tortured by our relations, terrified by death, and most of all, in need of God. So to close out the week, I just want to say, thank God for the church. Thank God, literally, for the church. In the midst of disease, debauchery, and despair, the church will not be defeated, even by the gates of hell. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion.